I'm Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. In the opening, I recap the first day of the Kentonji Brown-Jackson Supreme Court confirmation hearing. She seems like a nice lady, but how on earth can a supporter of the anti-Constitution 1619 project defend, you know, our Constitution for a living from the highest court in the land? Not to mention she's weak on crime and sympathetic to critical race theory. Hey, but she seems really nice and she checks all those precious boxes. So she must be a genius. Also in the beginning of the show, I touch on why I now believe that male swimmer, cheater, and hoaxer Leah Thomas was actually throwing swimming races to gain credibility with the public. Is this the watershed moment for the trans movement where we finally return to sanity and back to science? Or do we just continue down the super woke path? Well, if you look at corporate America, I definitely am quite cynical in this regard. Even Disney and other far left corporations are eating themselves alive for not being woke enough. I touch on all that. Plus, the Wall Street Journal had a sudden realization that Elon Musk really, really loves China. What gives? And of course, I give you an update on the increasingly tedious Russia-Ukraine news cycle that still at any moment could devolve into, you know, nuclear war. Perhaps. Who knows? Hopefully not. Two terrific guests today, investigative journalist John Solomon, who also moonlights an expert on the Russian oligarchy. He gives perhaps the best assessment of what's really going on in that region that I've heard to date. You're not going to want to miss that. He gives us exactly what's happening. And Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, discusses her opening remarks at the confirmation hearing for Kentonji Brown-Jackson, and she lays out her Q&A strategy and the strategy she recommends for her Republican colleagues as we head in towards the Q&A portion of the hearings. All that begins. You go to Breitbart.com for all the latest on that. All that to come, but first, a word from our sponsors. Speaking of fake news, I will mention that NewsGuard, which is the self-appointed, the hall monitors of the entire internet, who are funded entirely by the corporate media and the establishment and serve the purposes purely of the establishment, where they absurdly try to brand entire websites, fake news or real news versus individual stories meaning they brand every story at the New York Times gets a green check mark because they love the New York Times even when they're dead wrong, like, for example, the Russian collusion hoax. Uh, and stories at Breitbart all get branded with a red check mark, meaning we're fake news. Even stories that are dead right, like, I don't know, everything that was written about Juicy Smoulier and about Brett Kavanaugh and about uh, the Russian uh, PP dossier and about... Uh, Nicholas Sandman and all of the fake news that all of the establishment media got wrong and Breitbart got right. We're still, we still get uh, red check marks on every article because that's what NewsGuard does. And one of the people who is an advisor to NewsGuard and is on their advisory board is a guy named Michael Hayden, who is a former Bush administration CIA director who is now a generic anti-Trump guy on cable news and Twitter, a true deep stater if there ever was one. He was one of the guys who pushed the lie that Russian disinformation was the, the Hunter Biden laptop was actually Russian disinformation. So we reached out to NewsGuard and we asked them, why is this guy on your advisory board? 
or, or how could you possibly act as though you are a some sort of a neutral fact checker? And the, he did. They do call, they have corporate partnerships with Microsoft, literally backed by Microsoft. They're given legitimacy by Microsoft. So, um, and they have partnerships with all, all sorts of all sorts of major corporations. But you've got a guy who was in the former national security advisor and CIA director. So clearly, clearly a deep state guy on the organization uh, advisory board providing advice. I think his thing, Hayden, also he compared some of Trump supporters to Nazis at some point. I mean, I have a whole section on this and breaking the news. Everyone can uh, pull it down if you feel like it. I highly recommend it. These stories come back. It's part of why I wrote it is because I try to uh, I try to write about things that will have some sort of historical value. But this was a called shot because I wrote about Hayden and how it was so absurd that this guy in particular. And he was one of the lead guys pushing the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian disinformation. He's on the board of a fact-checking organization. And when we reached out to NewsGuard, uh, NewsGuard was incensed because we had written that Hayden was on their board. And they said, whoa, he's not on our board. He's on our advisory board. And I'm like, what? Well, you said board. We said, yeah. Well, that means board of directors. Okay. He's on our advisory board, not our board of directors. All right. Thanks, NewsGuard. You guys are really good. You're really sharp. This is an insane moment we're in where the deep state is uh, is dividing the country at an unbelievable level, and they fail upwards. If you're a deep stater and you make a massive mistake, like John Brennan, who was PP dossier hoaxer extraordinaire, or James Clapper, then all you do is get million-dollar book deals and TV contracts. That's what you do. That is your reward for getting stuff wrong because you say the stuff that people want you to hear. Okay, someone should write a book on it. Wait a minute. Someone did. Someone did. All right. Um, so the Kentonji Brown-Jackson hearing started yesterday. We previewed a bit yesterday. And uh, she seemed pretty classy. And uh, she had some nice things to say. And she had a good moment where she stopped and thanked God and her family. Um, and it just seems like it's going to be some sort of a coronation, which is a shame. And the coronation is taking place, as I have noted, and we'll note over and over and over again, because we need to learn our lesson, is that it's all because Republicans decide to stay home in Georgia. That would not be the case if Republicans did not give two Senate seats to Democrats in order to protest what was, of course, a somewhat unfair election. Quite unfair election in the 2020 presidential election, so that we decided we'd give Democrats more seats. So um, the uh, absurdity of it of Cory Booker is a number one guy saying that she's like Jackie Robinson and never misses a moment to be overly dramatic. He's he's got to be the cringiest guy in the whole Senate, other than maybe Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, the dumbest person in the Senate. Now, those of you who listen to the show know how rarely I call people I disagree with uh, politically dumb. I don't tend to spend a lot of time on the dumb people. If they're dumb, they're generally not interesting enough for talk radio. I'm much more interested in the smart people who are uh, my opponents politically. But Maisie Hirono is dumb, so she's pretty cringy. But Cory Booker, not a dumb guy. Uh, he just always just ramps up the melodrama. But I mean, the Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson who, of course, civil rights icon and terrific baseball player, first black player in Major League Baseball. 
Uh, he was a success despite his skin tone when his skin tone was a massive liability and a massive distraction publicly. So Kentonji Brown Jackson is only being nominated specifically because of her black skin. She's being rewarded for having black skin and for being a woman. So it's actually the exact opposite. She's literally the opposite of Jackie Robinson and of course being called Jackie Robinson. So um, that is a, 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 but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You just say stuff like that. And the media doesn't care to point that out, that it does. I would love to get the take uh, from anyone in the Robinson family or anyone who wants to be a part of Legacy, why everyone thinks they're Jackie Robinson these days. Uh, NBC had not bad comparing, this is not a joke, transgender swimmer Leah Thomas to Jackie Robinson. So the man who is beating women in swimming is like the first black American professional um, uh, to, to play, play Major League Baseball. Okie doke. It's the, uh, how can I even add to it? It, the, uh, it is so unbelievably absurd. How could NBC News put something like this out? Yet they do. Thomas was ranked 462nd when competing against men, which Thomas swam as a man for years in the Ivy Leagues and now is swimming as a woman and is winning, won the NCAA championship. I think it's very clear the more I've been thinking about it, and I spoke about this during the opening of the show yesterday, which is available on podcasts if you want to get your Breitbart News Daily podcast. Good way to catch up on the show, even if you like the live show. That's what people have been telling me. Some people like both. Um, but I mentioned this, that Dylan Gwynn, our sports editor, uh, um, wrote a piece about this, and I think he really is on to something. It seems to be pretty clear that uh, Leah Thomas is, is also hoaxing people because Thomas um, did not win every race, and it's pretty clear Thomas is throwing the races that he's not winning. So he should win every race. Because recall, he's breaking records in the longer races, so the 500-meter but he's not even winning the 200 meter, whereas men tend to have an advantage in the shorter races. So it's pretty clear that he's also a hoaxer. He's not just a cheater, but he's a hoaxer because he's throwing the, the other races. And that's pretty obvious at this point. And again, you can't even say this stuff because it sounds like it's, it sounds like I'm the crazy one, not the dude who's setting records in women's sports and everyone just sits around and just claps. Like, Woo, all right, great, great job. Leah, it's like Jackie Robinson. She's like Jackie Robinson. Look, America had a big history of enslaving trans people. That's our background. Um, a couple of the lines of inquiry that we're going to see throughout the rest of the week, Lindsey Graham brought, brought up a good one, which is dark money that is funding uh, Kentonji Brown-Jackson has in the past, including Arabella Advisors, which we've written quite a bit about um, at uh, Breitbart, Soros Money. So she'll be a vehicle of the left. And she has been in the past. She's got a record of releasing violent criminals uh, during the coronavirus, pushing for those policies. Just generic lefty policies. She might be quite likable if you hear her speak, and she was likable yesterday if you listened to her. But she has this bizarre record of releasing criminals, including those who are sex offenders. And she's backed by the worst forces on the left. But uh, again, she's got a glide path unless she says something colossally stupid. That is, there's not going to be a lot that's there that's going to be able to stop her. One thing that also was curious to me is that the establishment media was not playing all of the hearing live yesterday. 
because they're still in Ukraine mode. They're trying to milk the Ukraine for all it's worth. So they, they love a good war. The Democrat media complex loves a good war almost as much as the military industrial complex. So they want to keep their around the clock Ukraine going. Um, we'll speak to Senator Blackburn later about this, but she was, I think, pretty articulate on the uh, why the uh, record of violent criminals should be unacceptable. But none of this stuff is going to be a deal breaker to any Democrats because Democrats like it. It's all things Democrats like. So the lead Democrat right now in the world is Big Joey the Biden. And he expressed on Monday in a speech uh, that was meeting with business leaders that the United States has an opportunity to lead in the new world order. That was a a vocabulary word that is, is he going off the cuff here or is he just trying to trigger people? Because a lot of people hear the phrase new world order and they think, oh my gosh, this is the globalist Davos plot to take care of us all. I mean, to, yeah, I guess take care of us all, but take hold of us all. Take all of our freedoms. Now is the time when things are shifting. There's going to be a new world order out there and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the world while doing it, he concluded. Joe Biden is the, the only leadership capability he has at this point in the United States is he's led the whole world to think that, you know, Joe Biden's not that great. I mean, is he impressing anyone on any subject matter? Um, but that was his conversation that I guess he was pushing with, with, with business leaders. He was saying that it's actually, we're at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy, not just the world economy, the world, that occurs every three or four generations. A general told me that 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946, and since then we've established a liberal world order, and it hasn't happened in a long while. What does that mean? I think a lot more people died than 60 million between 1900 and 1946. How many people die a year? I'll look this up. That doesn't make sense. A lot of people die, but nowhere near the chaos. Now is the time when things are shifting, and there's going to be a new world order out there. We've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. How's he planning going about this? We can't even drill our own oil. There's conversation now that we're going to be getting oil from Venezuela, which first of all, Venezuela is a horrible place run by communists. And their oil is not as easy to extract and to use for energy as American oil. Even Obama's former advisor on the economy, Austin Goolsby, has said that it's a weird policy. Um, it is, it, it just the United States is blessed not just with the most oil in the world, but we also have oil that's much easier to convert into energy that is usable than Venezuela. So we don't need Venezuelan oil. There's lots of oil in Venezuela, enough that Venezuela should be able to, you know, if they were a, a competent people with an accountable government. Uh, they should be able to do it and prosper much more than they are. Incredibly destitute country because of communism, of course. But I say, why do we need their oil? What's wrong with our oil? Oh, yeah, the green lobby won't let us do it. We can see this because the SEC chairman is now essentially channeling his inner BlackRock and um, doing work on behalf of the left. The three to one vote 
by the Securities and Exchange Commission to advance a proposed rule that would require public companies to disclose their climate risks, which is apparently redundant, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, who wrote about it. But in a nutshell, this means that we're focused on uh, making sure that our, our companies are even woker. This is exactly that, um, that stakeholder capitalism that we talked uh, so much about last year which will become one of the phrases you hear a lot, where capitalism now is no longer about who owns share, it's also who gets a stake, which means companies are under an obligation to do what they can to stop climate change. And if they don't, they're going to be regulated even more than they already are. 510-page proposal have to disclose the risk of physical assets from climate change as well as the government's anti-carbon policies. That's what the SEC is doing today. Or yesterday, I guess. As opposed to drill, baby, drill, which would, of course, uh, alleviate so many of our issues, particularly the gas pump. Uh, Republicans are apparently recruiting people to vote at the gas pump, which I like. Like, they're literally going to gas stations to do that. We're seeing lots of reports of people stealing gas. Um, people uh, hacking gas pumps. I mean, can you imagine, I was just, you know, we were talking to Dan Gaynor on the show yesterday, who's got a 40-something mile commute. If you had a car like mine and you were in an area where you had gas prices like mine, I mean, that's like 30, 40 bucks a day. If you had a big gas guzzler that like I have, which I need because I have three small children. So I always got, you know, car seats and gear. There's not a lot of options for me to move three small children around that are a fuel efficient. Hey, maybe I can get one of uh, Elon Musk cars so I can support China. Um, two states have temporarily suspended the gas tax to ease drivers' burdens at the pump. Those states are Georgia and Maryland. Okay, that's nice. Why don't we just drill? Why don't we just drill? I mean, I'm happy to relieve the gas tax. Fine. I'd say that's fine. I'm good with that. Um, I pay exorbitant amounts in taxes, but I did get, get word from the IRS that I overpaid by $43 in uh, 2020. So I'll be getting a $43 refund. That will get me a third of a tank of gas. So thanks, IRS, for that. I wonder how long it took them to calculate that. I wonder how much uh, money was wasted. It's kind of a funny thought. Uh, th that's throwing me a bone. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, is picking a corporate CEOs for a, another advisory council. His border chief, the Joe Biden border chief, is uh, trying to get support from corporations such as General Motors, Oracle, American Airlines, United Airlines, Bank of America, and Chobani, all woke companies, as well as investors from Andreessen Horowitz, also pretty woke on the woke side and others to try to join a council uh, to essentially, I think, create this sort of patina of legitimacy to open borders policy. According for, to the Center for Immigration Studies, which is an important group, councils intended to be the secretary's think tank to be made up of subject matter experts who can help advance the department's mission. With the exception of a few people, it seems like the new list is made up primarily of establishment business and cheap labor open border advocates. And there's no reason to see that any entities on the new list will seek to promote the interests of American workers 
um, or uh, they have any of them made a career in making a serious commitment to enforcing our border laws. What a great point. What a great point. Who in this list has actually shown a lifetime of concern about security of America's border? Hey, but if you ask him about Ukraine's border, really interested in that security. All right, uh, we're still on Fauci watch here. Dr. Doom is out there, which means, you know, maybe this uh, new variant people are talking about, which I don't think has been named yet. Maybe it has. I don't know. Um, but he says we have a, a way to go in the coronavirus pandemic. I actually kind of agree with him on this, but we know what that means for him. That means more masks uh, for kids and lockdowns. So that's why I don't like when he says that stuff. But Shanghai's Disneyland was temporarily shut down to avoid the latest coronavirus crisis that's going on. Warner Todd Houston writes for us to Breitbart, Disney's resorts in China have been shuttered due to the country's rising rates of coronavirus. Disney posted a notice to visitors on its website informing them that several attractions will be shut down immediately. So there's a panic happening in China. We can't report on this. Remember, over a year ago, Fareed Zakaria on CNN declared that China had beaten coronavirus. And China continues to tout its own coronavirus policies. The media doesn't react to any of this. Because why? It's bad news for China, and the media all makes money off of China. They all have, I mean, why would NBC and ABC, which owns Disney, NBC's got parks. So of course they're not going to report on China. Of course, most famously, Bloomberg, Lorene Powell Jobs, who owns half of, you know, Democrat media or, you know, establishment media, all of them make money off of China. So and China's out there saying they're doing a great job, literally touting their own coronavirus policies, calling their measures effective, even though their own state media is acknowledging that places like Disneyland are uh, having to shut down there. In the meantime, conservative media continues her love affair with Elon Musk, who makes tons of money off of the CCP. The Wall Street Journal finally put out a story, Elon Musk's love affair with communist China creates unease in Washington. When I saw the story, I, I actually laughed out loud. I literally laughed out loud. Elon Musk's business ties to China create unease in Washington. The Wall Street Journal has not been great on China. They've been better than the rest of the establishment media, but that's saying nothing. And now all of a sudden it dawned on them that Elon Musk, a world's richest man or second richest man, is doing lots and lots of business with China and panders to China constantly. And now they're thinking maybe it's a problem. Um, and I reached out to Peter Schweitzer, whose book Red Handed continues to be a force of nature. Um, and I asked him, like, what do you think of this? Because basically your reporting, because he featured Musk in his book, and Musk's pictures on the cover, are, is this, are they stealing your thunder? Are you happy about it? And he said, no, no, we're happy. We like it. So good for, uh, good for uh, not Musk, good, good for uh, Peter for having that approach. But I laughed at it. I thought, like, oh, wow, all of a sudden they care about Musk. They waited until he'd been, you know, world's richest man for a, a bunch of years. So it is, it, it, keep in mind, Peter's, the connection Peter made is that if you are a, a business that exists in China, you're existing at the leisure of the CCP. And if you're creating technology in China and you are a technology company, then the CCP has access to all of your technology. And if they have access to it, then they will be using it for military, for AI, 
for uh, trying to supplant America as the superpower in the world stage. So Musk is helping with all that, and he's cool with it. And he will continue to get contracts, not just from the Chinese government, but the American government. And just dawned on the Wall Street Journal this week, which I guess is better than nothing. But, you know, would it would, it, would have been nice to have a couple-year head start on this. Um, speaking of woke corporations, I will throw out this story of Disney CEO Bob Chapek, who's working to mend fences with employees at a company-wide meeting. Again, according to the Wall Street Journal. I think I, I think it was down a Wall Street Journal rabbit hole yesterday. I think that's what happened. It does happen on the internet. It's kind of fun. Just start clicking away and seeing where it takes you. Surfing the web. Uh, but this story is unbelievable because Disney's woke employees are very upset that the company is not virtue signaling about the uh, don't say gay bill, which is, of course, a false label that the media has put on a bill in Florida, which says you're not allowed to talk about sexual matters and sexual orientations with kindergartners through third graders. So basically the grooming of young children to become LGBTQ plus 2S star apostrophe hashtag ampersand rainbow flag or whatever it is now that they don't want to, they want you to at least wait until you're nine until they can start indoctrinating you. That's the point of the Florida bill is that if you're going to try to convert our kids to trans, you got to at least wait until their ninth birthday. That's basically the law. And this has been banned, branded the don't say gay bill somehow. And it took for the most part, because people don't ask questions. We just are clapping seals so often these days. And so Disney's employees are mad that the company is not uh, doing anything as they're largely based in Florida to stop it. And so the CEO, a guy named Bob Chapek, says, I and the leadership team are determined to use this moment as a catalyst for meaningful and lasting change. What a fool. And the company said, according to the journal, it would be aggressive in opposing an effort by Texas Governor Greg Abbott to have, states invest, have the state investigate parents for possible child abuse if their trans children receive hormone blockers. We were run by weaklings and fools. You know who Disney thinks the problem is? Not communist China. They think the problem is that in our public schools and private schools, there is an ample opportunity to indoctrinate third graders and under with the trans BS. We will not be able to continue as a elite country if we continue to behave this way. And it seems to be very hard to slow down this train, which has long since left the station. good to catch up with John Solomon, who is really one of the best investigative journalists working. He's got an important book called Fallout, which covers Putin and the Russian oligarchy and the deep connections to the Democrat establishment. That's right, the Democrat establishment in the United States, not the Republican establishment. And I knew he knew how Putin got wealthy and how he maintains power better than just about anyone 
in media, and so I called on him to assess the situation, and as it turns out, he's going to be joining me as a new colleague on SiriusXM Patriot, which is really exciting as well. We get into all of that in the interview. Let's play it. Just the News Radio is going to be on SiriusXM Patriot, and I think it's premiering uh, this week at 9 a.m. Eastern, so right before Breitbart News Saturday, which is really cool, and uh, it's going to re-air on Sundays as well. So, uh, John, congrats on the new show. Uh, Let's talk about that first before we get into the news. Yeah, very exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. Saturdays are going to be fun for me. We've got a great show. Um, Myself, uh, Cheryl Atkinson, the great investigative reporter, and, of course, Victor David Hansen. We're all going to be doing original stories, original interviews, and some analysis and uh, try to give people just some food for thought as they start their weekend on Saturdays. I'm really looking forward to it. love to join the SiriusXM family. It's such a great power uh, lineup, uh, yourself included, so very excited. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. And congrats on all the success recently. I, I, I want to talk to you about so about the uh, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine from your vantage point, because you're someone who has written extensively on Russia and what motivates them and what keeps the oligarchy in power, how they make their money, how they've been able to maintain power. And then you're sort of uh, I want to get your reaction to how poorly things have gone for them uh, over the last few weeks, which I think surprised just about everyone, uh, myself included. Uh, maybe offer your 30,000 foot, and then I've got some uh, uh, specifics. Yeah, listen, the economies of the Soviet Union devolved, uh, many of them devolved into these sort of corrupt oligarchies where uh, one or two or three people control an entire industry. There's really no competition. And these oligarchs not only become you know, extraordinarily wealthy, they become puppets of the state. They, they, they do the work and the bidding of the state. So if you're a Russian oligarch you and Putin needs a favor, well, you have to carry that out as part of your uh, maintaining your monopoly that you have in the business. And so what, you know, there was great, all this great hope that the Soviet Union would evolve into these incredible capitalist society. Now, there's some that have. Estonia has been very successful, but most of them, like Russia and Ukraine, have, have devolved into these oligarchies. And what happened over the last decade is the Democrats began to tap these uh, oligarchs for their own personal finance. You have uh, you have people like Vintor Pinchuk, one of the largest uh, donors to the Clinton Foundation. He's a Ukrainian oligarch. You've got uh, uh, Nikola Zolchevsky. He's an oligarch that uh, hired Hunter Biden at the Burisma uh, gas company in Ukraine, a corrupt company, and that put Hunter Biden on his board, paid him millions. Uh, you've got someone like Elena Baterina, who's a Russian oligarch, sure. uh, the wealthiest one. And the Democrats start cashing in. They become this little piggy bank for Democrats and political causes. And then, of course, geopolitics takes effect, and we're now in a situation where Ukraine and Russia are at war, and the Democrats are sort of conflicted. They've had these financial relationships, and you can see the hesitancy in the Biden administration of not going too difficult on a lot of these different uh, players. And so uh, the corruption uh, went two ways. You know, the piggy bank phenomenon in Russia, Ukraine is a very serious matter, and I think it underlies a lot of the things that have happened on the geopolitical stage the last few years. Uh, John's book, Fallout, is the one that I'm uh, talking about right now with him. Nuclear bribes, Russian spies, and the Washington lies that enriched the Clinton and Biden dynasties, which he wrote with Seamus Bruner, who's one of Peter Schweitzer's colleagues at the Government Accountability Institute, and is a great guy. I got to hang out with Seamus. Oh, Seamus is amazing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. And I know he's got a big book where he's working on now, uh, which I will not mention because uh, I will get in trouble for that. Uh, but it's, it's, <laughs> I think that one's going to be good, too. Uh, but, John, it's, it, can I ask you something? It, has 
anyone else reached out about Fallout and said we should talk to John about this because he was a guy who really dove into this uh, and he knows his stuff cold. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you know NBC News and CNN. They've been wanting to get you on the blower, like see see what your take is on all this. <laughs> yeah. No, you're about the only call I got recently, and I'm grateful yeah. that I've gotten it. Yeah, listen, this is a difficult story for the mainstream and corporate media to cover because for a long time they bought into the false stories that were used to hide and cover up the, uh, uh, the Democrats' corrupt relationship with these oligarchs. How do we know that? In, in our book, in Fallout, there's an incredible anecdote that in the summer of 2015, as Hillary Clinton is beginning her preparation for the 2016 campaign, she does a survey to find out of all the scandals in her background, Whitewater and, and the uh, Asia fundraising scandal and the email scandal, which was the one that presented the most... Um, a problem for her uh, running to be president or to win the White House. And she was surprised to find out it was the Clinton cash allegations, the sure. allegations that her and Bill Clinton had taken advantage of their Russia relationship to get that $500,000 speech fee and that extraordinary amount of money to the foundation from Uranium One and many of the other uh, Russians that enriched her while she was rebooting as the quarterback for Barack Obama, the Russian relationship. And so they set out, and that is the origins, the impetus for why they go out and eventually do the Steele dossier. They wanted to create a Russian scandal for Republicans that would keep Russia off limits for her. And so uh, the, you know, the, the media got taken for that ride by Christopher Steele and Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS and all the stories we know about that. And then in 2019, when we stumble onto the Hunter Biden story and, and, and Joe Biden story, the same thing happens. Where everyone is scared away. It was a conspiracy theory. I was called a conspiracy theorist, along with Peter Schweitzer and others in 2019, only to find out after the Ukraine impeachment and everything that that entire story was true as well. In of fact, maybe even about criminal activity. So, and this is really the biggest point, I think, overall with the book. I mean, I think the book is most interesting because you actually get into some of the specifics. But I think the biggest point is how it really was the Obama, Clinton, John Podesta apparatus uh, that was trying to make money off of not just Russia, but the whole former Soviet Union uh, with these deals that are codified by these oligarchs. And yeah. they saw that weakness and they overcompensated for it by acting as though Donald Trump was the one who was compromised by these people. So I, I, I'm sure you agree with that because you wrote a whole book about it. But can you give me a few of the specifics that you think are really worth mentioning at this time? Well, listen, I think one of the this was a two way relationship, right? We know that the uh, we know what the money that, let's say, John Podesta was on the board of a clean energy company. Russia is not known for clean energy. All of a sudden, a Russian yeah. oligarch invests in that company while John Podesta is on the board. We, we've seen other patterns. But one of the uh, most important and, I think, long-term consequential events in this is that uh, while this is going on and while the Clintons and, and the uh, Bidens and others are ca cashing in and getting enriched, Russia is making strategic gains. In the early uh, 2010 to 2014, the Obama administration signed billions of dollars of contracts that commit American utilities to buy uranium from Russia. Not from America, but from Russia. That's something we can't extricate ourselves from right now or we would lose our electricity. There are large efforts to bring Russian oil and gas into the country uh, to make that possible. Hillary Clinton funds um, uh, and begins an effort called the Skokovo Foundation yes. designed to create what was supposed to be a, a Silicon Valley in 
uh, Russia. But in fact, it turns out to be a corporate espionage effort. And some of the technology that leads Russia to make those hypersonic missiles we just heard about last weekend, that is taken from the U.S. military here and, and transferred secretly or stolen by the Russians, according to uh, a Pentagon report that we got access to. So while, while the Democrats are getting enriched, Russia made enormous strategic gains to get uh, an upper hand on the United States government, whether it's in uranium gas or military technology. So it, it, it turned out to be a sellout in many ways. We lost strategic advantages, and I think we saw some of that when the Biden administration was forced to start sanctioning uh, Russia and cut off some of these corrupt relationships. So the long-term consequences to America are clear from, from these decisions that the Clinton-Obama-Biden team made. Uh, John Solomon again is my guest. Justthenews.com at J Solomon reports on Twitter, Just the News Podcast, and the new Just the News radio show on Patriot starts this Saturday at 9 a.m., which is actually a total coincidence, which, uh, John, I bet even you don't believe that's the case, but I told Greg, well, I was on I vacation. <laughs> I specifically said I was on vacation. I thought of you. I was thinking of the book, and I was thinking of uh, the Russian oh, oligarchs. So in particular, in particular, Skolkovo, so which you brought up. Uh, can you remind people of this one? Because this is one of the most unbelievable things, and I think a real blight on recent American history that we were a part of this uh and it is one that that is uh, i remember it took me two or three tries to get my mind around it uh, can you give us some of the, the some of the basics yeah listen so uh hillary clinton as her husband's collecting money and uh five hundred thousand dollars speech fees and her and her foundation is getting money from russian sources and her aides are cashing in on business deals there uh, uh, it gets approached by President Medvedev. That's the one that temporarily replaced Putin. He was sort of a puppet uh, uh, sure. substitute for Putin for a few years. And they, they, he says, listen, we want to create a technology hub in Russia that can be our Silicon Valley. And so we, the State Department, uh, facilitates that in many ways under Hillary Clinton. Large numbers of our Silicon Valley people go over to Russia and they help them build this little technology hub. And we think we're helping Russia, the Russian economy diversify from its reliance on energy. In fact, all we were doing was helping the Russian military spy on our corporate assets, on our technologies. And there's this extraordinary Amazing. Pentagon report written just as the Obama administration is leaving office that said Skokovo turned out to be a really bad idea. The Russians used it for corporate espionage to find out uh, our technologies, our military capabilities to build relationships that they can spy on. And as a result, they made... Uh, leaps and gains on a hypersonic missile program. Today, Russia and China appear to be ahead of the United States on hypersonic missiles. Russia uh, claims they fired one this past weekend. Uh, so they now have a strategic advantage in the military world with missiles that we don't yet have complete capability. Where do they get that starter know-how from? From the Skokovo efforts that they, uh, they carried out with Hillary Clinton. Now, after all these things happen, right, they get oil, they get uranium, they get uh, contracts, they get uh, Skokovo, they invade Crimea in uh, the, summer, uh, the winter of 2014, the beginning of what's now been a nine-year Ukraine war. And so they got, Russia got everything they wanted, and then they immediately turned on the United States. And it really shows the danger of trying to attain peace through appeasement when you're working with someone like Vladimir Putin. Peace through appeasement doesn't work. Oh, where does uh, where does Vladimir Putin make all of his money? We just saw everyone's been looking at these photos of his gigantic uh, yacht. It's a what was he involved in where he got his wealth? You know, he has a piece of almost all of the oligarchies. At least that's the, the current belief of the U.S. intelligence. He basically any oligarch that has a business in Russia or connected to business ends up kicking money back to him corruptly. 
Uh, and his money is spread all across the world. It's in secret bank accounts. I saw a lot of it's in London, the U.S. intelligence community believes. He's believed to be one of the wealthiest men in the world, but most of that wealth is hidden. Uh, but the, you know, it really shows what happens when you have a non-competitive, non-free market economy like Russia. Uh, someone like him can amass enormous fortunes and hide it. For most of the last 10 years, we didn't focus on that, only recently because of some bank leaks, followed by uh, some extraordinary uh, reporting by AP and others. We now get a sense of the sheer volume of Putin's wealth. And uh, that's the hunt that the uh, Biden administration belatedly is on to now to figure out how can we freeze and punish him, freeze his assets and punish him for, for his bad behavior. So w- what is your reaction to Putin's uh, efforts in Ukraine right now? Were you surprised that he invaded? Because I was because I wasn't convinced it was strategically smart for him to do that. And I had given Putin apparently too much credit for being strategic uh, and. Um, I'm very curious your thoughts on that premise as well, because I am not used to watching Putin kind of screw up at this level, at least in terms of wielding power. He's generally been pretty effective at wielding power. I'm not a fan of his uh, for the Soros Fund of Freaks monitoring the show. I have almost nothing nice to say about Putin, but he has been, you know, effective in maintaining power for all these years. And this is not a good move if he's trying to do that. It seems like he's just kind of ticking everyone off and not getting his his job done. Um, But what's your reaction to sort of the, the dominoes? Yeah, listen, so I think originally most of the people I talked to in the intelligence world thought he was going to do an incursion to create a buffer zone around the Crimean region that he felt was threatened by Ukraine, didn't have enough of a military buffer. Uh, I think everyone is shocked at the extent of how far he intruded into Ukraine and then also how badly his military has performed. He has taken great pride in saying he rebuilt the Russian military. They're having a, the Russian military is having a very difficult time. There are reports this morning that they lost control of a suburb, one of the few victories that Russia has had in this war. And you can see the desperation. Uh, we have gone from bombing, he's gone from bombing strategic military sites to bombing civilians, trying to uh, uh, demoralize the Ukrainian people. He's found out that the Ukrainians are very hard to demoralize. They have great pride in their country. They're fighting back, and I think he has paid a a double dear price. I think the first price is he's isolated from the rest of the world. He's not going to be able to get his economy out of the nosedive that the West has now created for him. But I think there is enormous interior uh, unrest. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind, Ukraine has a very important uh, emotional connection to Ukraine. A lot of people believe modern-day Russia actually was formed in, in Kiev, and so there's enormous loyalty between the Russian people and the Ukrainian people. And I think over time, begin, the Russian people can't hide their doubts, their, uh, their questions about what is this guy doing? Why is he killing civilians in Ukraine? Those stories are seeping through. So he's losing political grip among his people while also losing access to the wealth and money that's propped up Russia. I think, he's, I think he made a major miscalculation that could at some point end his leadership of Russia. So what sense do you think the Russian people know about what's going on? Because this is where when you're I don't know if I've ever seen so much disinformation in my life because of both sides in this case, because the Ukrainians are sort of master propagandists in their own right, which is not a criticism, which is not I'm not even they're at war. So they're doing what they can. Capability, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so they, they've honed that skill. And of course, Russia is a, a purely propaganda state, pretty much. So it's a what is the, the, do you think the Russian people are aware of what's going on, how badly it's going? 
I do. I think there's, uh, and you see it in the number of street protests that have gone on, uh, which are the largest we've seen in, in any one of Putin's presidencies. Um, uh, there is, uh, you know, really clear evidence that I think what's happening is, yeah, the media has predominantly, uh, in the early going of the war, uh, kept the Russian propaganda up. And now you've seen the episode, the famous broadcaster who ran the sign along. They're hearing from their athletes. Russia is very proud of its athletes, and there's some other athletes who've spoken out. Uh, it, for a while, I think the, the, they got fed a diet that there was a denazification uh, going on. That that was a term that that Putin was using. Over time, the natural uh, communication between Ukraine and Russia. Some of the uh, influencers in Russia have not towed the line. The media episode with the woman who did the stunt. Uh, it's clear that the Russian people know what's going on now, and they're increasingly dissatisfied. And if they don't know what's going on in Ukraine, they can certainly see what's going on in their own economy, where access to banks, food, all the general staples of life have been severely restricted. They know they've been punished, and I don't think they like it. And I think that's one of the problems, that you can only run a propaganda machine so long before the impact of, of both um, sanctions and real war. Wow. You know, there are people in Russia that just know Ukrainians that are talking to them. Wow. That's, so what do you make of some of these uh, massive rallies that uh, Putin has? I think he filled the stadium. I mean, are people getting paid off? Are people getting coerced to be there? Do you think he uh, does still have that level of, of, a, of support? Because it seems like, I mean, maybe there's some hope that, that's eroding. Well, listen, the heat, fear is always the greatest motivator in a society run, run by a, ter, a ter, tyrannical leader like him. And so fear is it. If, people, if the government calls on you, you're probably going to go to the rally whether you believe in it or not, because you've seen what's happened to people like Navalny, who just got convicted again today. Opposition leaders don't fare well in Russia. So I think he rules by fear, and that fear will motivate people to fill a stadium. But you can't ignore at the same time these organic protests that have gone on, whether they're on television, on the streets. Uh, there is uh, more unrest and uncertainty about the future of Russia right now among its people than at any time since the end of the Cold War. And I think that that bodes very badly for Putin long term. He'll hold on to power short term. He'll probably try to make some peace deal at some point with Ukraine. Uh, but the, uh, the West has really boxed him in in the economic uh, impact every day starts to take a toll on the everyday Russians. I think that's the dynamic that most is going to have impact on his future. Evaluate what you think is going to happen short to medium term, because it seems like we're kind of in this war of attrition mode now. I guess it could go on for a long time. I think Putin does not want to look like he lost, which is he's in. It, that's something that has got to be a deep concern. For him, because I'm sure he'd like for this to end kind of at this point, but it's not if that means it looks like he lost on the world stage. So you, that that puts us in a scary spot here because maybe we could see it escalate before it starts getting better. Yeah, that's right. I think there's three things to watch for. One is uh, just how much more bombardment and how much is left to bombard of Ukraine. There are entire cities that are leveled now. Uh, and so at some point you start to run out of targets. Uh, and the more you, you, you hit civilian sites like you saw with the art school over the weekend and uh, the uh, theater the other uh, last week, the more likely you are that you're going to begin to see war crime prosecutions or war crime claims. Uh, I think uh, Russia's ultimate goal right now is to do a decapitation strike, to get rid of Zelensky, who has shown enormous power as the Ukrainian president, to rally his people to, to fight this aggression. And uh, they're hoping that losing Zelensky will, will take some of the fervor out of the Ukrainian uh, fight. But that hasn't happened. 
Uh, I do think it goes on for several more weeks. At some point, I think there'll need to be some form of a truce. Uh, uh, and I, it just in Putin's mind, it'll depend on where he can sell the best story of uh, Russia's success. Uh, but, you know, the future for Putin is, is not very strong. He's not going to be able to leave his country because he's going to be a war criminal at some point. The, the, the international court is going to try to uh, isolate him and arrest him at some point. And these sanctions are not going to be lifted the day he says, I'm done. Uh, he's going to have to live with an economy. And unless China props him up, uh, the economy of Russia really is in a tailspin by this summer. There's just simply going to be shortages of basic staples, and that often leads to the sort of unrest that can lead to regime change. John Solomon, award-winning journalist, justthenews.com. The new show, Just the News Radio and Sirius XM Patriot, 9 a.m. Saturdays at Eastern Time, and it'll be on the SXM app, I'm sure, with uh, Victor Davis Hansen and Cheryl Atkinson as well. Uh, last one, i got about 30 seconds, John. Uh, what America's role, do you see us getting involved, or is it mostly just send weapons over there and uh, uh, thoughts and prayers? I think we stay in that position of arming them, but staying out of a direct conflict. I think that's uh, the position the Biden administration is going to hold down very hard. Well done, my friend. The book Fallout has a lot more information on the Russian oligarchs that has not gone through the CNN MSNBC filter, which is very valuable right now. Thanks, John. Let's do this again. Thanks, Alex. Really appreciate it. Same here. I'll be right back. Senator Marshall Blackburn joins the show yet again. Always a voice, I think, of reason and clarity in the Senate. And uh, she does not disappoint in this interview where she breaks down her opening remarks in the Kentonji Brown Jackson hearing. And she also lays out where she thinks the Q&A portion is going to go in the days ahead. Here's the interview. Senator, thanks again for joining me on the show. Uh, I, I want to talk about the goals that you and your colleagues on the Republican side have, um, because unless you're able to convince some Democrats, it does appear as though uh, uh, Judge Jackson uh, is going to get confirmed. So what are your ultimate goals here? Do you believe that there is some hope to slow down uh, the nomination, or is it mostly, um, mostly about trying to inform the public at this point about who this judge is? Well, good morning, and thank you so much. Yes, I think that what we have to do is hold her to account for her record in the past. And she has been in private practice. She's been a public defender. She's made choices of who she would represent. We're going to explore those. She was on the U.S. Sentencing Commission and actually co-chaired that Federal Sentencing Commission. We want to see those records, and we're yet to get those records, to find out where she was on making those sentences. We also want to look at her record, uh, the 550 opinions that she has written. And Alex, my team and I have been working through all of this for the last several weeks and formulating the questions. And, uh, you know, no surprises, I laid out for her yesterday some of my primary concerns with her record. Uh, I, I think that there are some really notable concerns, but I want to play a clip of her from yesterday that I think is a really important thing to uh, point out to the audience. Can you play cut three, Haley? Yes, 
I have been a judge for nearly a decade now, and I take that responsibility and my duty to be independent very seriously. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the, the facts, and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. Uh, but it appears as though, Senator, she's got every position of a standard card-carrying mainstream leftist. It seems like someone who has backed critical race theory. She's backed 1619 Project. She's backed uh, jailbreaks. She's backed uh, lenient sentences on uh, criminals. Uh, it just seems like I can't think of an example so far where she's differed from party line uh, standard leftism. I, are there examples that I'm I'm missing? Am I just not doing enough research? Or is, is there, uh, it just seems like a dishonest statement to me. Well, think about what she did not say did not say in that that clip that you played she did not say i first go to the constitution mm. she said you know she she looks at precedent she looks at her understanding uh she looks at the facts of the case um and so what she should do as a constitutionalist judge, is look first at the Constitution and then look at the law and consider how that is going to affect the case that is in front of her. Um, the Constitution and the rule of law come before precedent. She is asking for a lifetime appointment on the U.S. Supreme Court. That is where precedent is set. Uh, it is where precedent is set. And there is something that I think is important to note because support for the 1619 Project or critical race theory uh, is not wouldn't necessarily um, uh, uh, compel a, your view on a on precedent, but it would compel your view on the Constitution because the whole premises of those two, uh, the, I guess a CRT is I guess a of a as a philosophy, and the sixteen nineteen project is a sort of fictional journalism endeavor by the New York Times. But both of those have the premise: the United States is an inherently racist place. And if you come into a job as a justice on the Supreme Court and you have advanced a viewpoint that America is a, is a uniquely racist and inherently racist place, uh, how could you defend our Constitution? It just seems like something that should be asked over and over and over again until we get clarity on this issue. Well, it should be because when you look at CRT, People that are really supportive of this progressive education, they view this almost like a religion. Some of these climate change advocates, they view this as a religion, and they feel as if this should be the priority. And if you have somebody sitting in front of you who is asking to be on the Supreme Court, and they have praised a school where they've been on the board for progressive education, and this school has a program called Woke Kindergarten, then this is a question that you should ask that individual. If this individual 
has said, and Judge Jackson in the speech listed out things that should be considered as a judge makes decisions. One of those was indeed CRT. Uh, then that should be something that you you ask, you know. Uh, how do you think CRT affects the decisions that you're going to that you're going to make? Exactly, and I just don't see how you could be a supposed to be a steward of our constitution and also advocate on behalf of a doctrine that detests our constitution. Just seems like something that seems fundamental to me. Um, you had some pretty choice remarks uh, from yesterday. You said the start of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, Judge Jackson proposed that each and every criminal defendant in D.C. Department of Corrections custody should be released. That would have been 1,500 criminals back on the street if you had your way. And you use the COVID-19 pandemic as a justification to release a fentanyl drug dealer, a bank robber addicted to heroin, and a convict who murdered a U.S. marshal into our communities. Uh, it's, it, did, did she react to this? I mean, what was her response to this? And if not, uh, what are you expecting over the next week? Well, no, she yesterday was her day to listen to us. And each member had 10-minute opening statement opportunities. Um, I brought this up. I wanted to let her know what I want to talk with her about today. I want to talk with her about her defense of Gitmo um, detainees, why she would choose to represent them as in her work as a public defender. I want to know where she is on parental rights. I am going to want to know why she made a decision that if it had been up to her, she would have released every prisoner in federal detention because of COVID-19. Why she pushed to release the individuals that she got released. When she was before us for her appellate hearing, I asked her about judicial philosophy. She said she really didn't have a judicial philosophy. I asked her about court packing. She did not give me an answer on court packing. So today I'm going to explore those with her. But I wanted to give her a heads up and let her know the things that are important to Tennesseans that I'm hearing from Tennesseans that they would like to hear me ask her. Yeah, I think that is, is something definitely uh, is going. I'm curious to see what her reaction is. You continued. You also have a consistent pattern of giving child porn offenders light sentences. Uh, what specifically are you talking about there? Yes, I mentioned that to her yesterday because, as you know, I've done a lot of work with what is happening to our children in the technology space. And sooner or later, some of these cases are going to make their way to the Supreme Court. And she has had a record of going light on child abusers and child por pornographers Um she does not believe that child pornographers are necessarily pedophiles. Uh, she goes under the minimum sentence. Her record has been going about five years under the minimum sentence, not the maximum, but the minimum sentence. So we're going to discuss that record with her and why she has made these decisions and why she has gone soft on child pornographers. That's a choice. 
Yeah, and this is something where I, it will be interesting if we are able to coax out of her an explanation for why. But uh, I've got a feeling we're not going to, Senator. I've got a feeling that she is going to somehow obfuscate. So what is the tactic? What is the strategy? Because it seems like some many of your colleagues are, are have some good uh, points to raise. Senator Hawley, Senator Cotton, uh, even Senator Graham uh, had some, uh, I think, pretty compelling comments yesterday in the opening statements. But when it comes to the Q&A, uh, what is the strategy to try to make it productive? Because so often these things are not productive. Well, as we get into this questioning, it is an opportunity for us to get on the record where she is on these issues. Because this is, when you go to the Supreme Court, you want equal access and you want equal justice. You want that justice to be based on the Constitution and the rule of law. You don't want it based on current events. Uh, you don't want it based on someone's opinion. You want there to be a firm understanding. So our responsibility is to push that forward, and that is uh, what I'm going to spend my time doing today and tomorrow and look forward to getting her on the record and having her answer some of these questions she has punted on when she's been before us previously. Uh, have you spoken to any of your colleagues who are uh, maybe across the aisle who uh, are open-minded to perhaps the slowing down this nomination or perhaps anyone uh, or, or it just to seem like this thing is a, a foregone conclusion barring something incredible? No, we need we need one Democrat who would come up and say, you know, I'm going to change my vote. And uh, we will uh, keep bringing forward the judge's record. Uh, it's the, exactly what we need to be doing because people want to make certain that we have constitutionalists who believe in the rule of law, or that that is who is going to be on our federal bench. Uh, one thing that was so striking during the Trump administration was all of his judicial picks, but in particular, uh, Justice Kavanaugh and to a lesser degree, Justice Barrett were attacked and smeared, dragged through the mud in an insane way. I don't think we'll ever forget the way Justice Kavanaugh was treated. Uh, this has all been remarkably civil thus far with this nominee from Joe Biden. And uh, I'm sure that this is something that you can speak to and in fact though the hostility has been directed towards you pretty much washington post msnbc have been attacking you uh it's the double standard is very obvious to point out but it is remarkable to see the expectations for total civility in this case when none was afforded to president trump's picks well and we know that the democrats are always going to have one approach for them and a completely different approach for Republican nominees. And that is one of the reasons that we made the point yesterday to be sure that they understood that we were going to push forward in a respectful manner. We were going to uh, ask hard questions, and we expected to get answers to those hard questions. They all deal, all deal with her record. 
Uh, and this is, uh, again, what we'll be watching for for the rest of the week. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. Anything you want to fill the audience in on before uh, you have to run? Uh, no. Uh, the hearing starts back in 15 minutes. Um, people can keep up with us at blackburn.senate.gov or online at Marsha Blackburn. Um, we'll be down there. Each member gets 30 minutes today to ask questions. Yeah, and that will be, I'll be very interested to see where it goes uh, because I'm just curious how the judge is going to answer these questions. And I got a feeling she's not going to want to answer them. And then we'll see how that looks after 30 minutes of not answering. That, that's my prediction, Senator. I got American parts. I got American faith. In America's heart. Thanks a lot to producers Haley and Greg Evan and to all of you for telling 10,000 friends and family members about the show, leaving comments, five-star reviews. That's all for today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Love.